I stand firmly in the fact that I'm one of the best to ever do this for the culture, for my coast, and for my city. This is the best rapper in LA podcast. Podcast. And I'm your host, Merce. 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 What up, though? What up, though? What up, though? All right, now. We start the journey of the end of the beginning, 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 beginning. Now when I came to the game, I was wet behind the ears. All I had was some raps that I wanted y'all to hear. Straight low budget, I was underground thugging it. You think I gave a fuck about a publicist? No! Start with the title, The End of the Beginning. What does that mean? Well, where we left off was almost famous. And I think we were. At this point, I don't believe anyone in Living Legends had records in chain stores, Imagine this. If you're over 30, you probably don't need this. But there were places where you would buy record stores. And it's Best Buy. Some of you, I'm hopefully even under 30, remember that. But there were Sam Goody, Tower Records, The Warehouse, Virgin Megastore. Yeah, I was. I made a post on Twitter one day that I was... There, I from, I'm from the era where I'm old enough to have listened to a record, an album on Virgin Records while flying on a virgin airplane while drinking a virgin cola while having a virgin mobile phone uh, and listening to a record on virgin records that I bought from the virgin megastore. These were chains and independent artists had a hard time getting picked up with chains. There's a wonderful woman by the name of Violet Brown who helped get a lot of underground artists, helped me especially, specifically, um, get put in these stores because she was a buyer or something of that nature for them. And that means your record was nationwide. And they had something called the circular, the best buy circular ad. When Sunday paper would come and people read the Sunday is a newspaper printed. It's like a blog on paper. There'd be ads for Target or like little uh, smaller magazines, if you would call them catalog-ish thing with sales, notifying you of the sales of the week. And that's where a lot of music nerds like myself would go and look for the new albums. And this gives, this podcast goes off, off all the time. Last night I was at a party for Esteban Oreo, Deffer, and uh, Sharky Edwards painting a Porsche, a Porsche release party in downtown LA where they were doing live airbrushing. It was so crazy. Two very dope DJs, free drinks. It was a good night. I ran into Zachy Force Funk, uh, who's the gentleman I bought the hip-hop store from when I owned a record store in Tucson. When I took over my record store, this is all full circle, there's the distributor sells the records to record stores. So TRC, where Peanut Butter Wolf got his start, and many other um, label owners and artists would distribute indie records and they'd call places. If you're not on a major label, they, you could buy them from them. They also carried some major label releases. Major labels also had one stops where you could go if you were a mom and pop record store and go to this huge warehouse and buy what came out that week at a wholesale price. You would go to the wholesale pe- um, wholesaler and you would purchase uh, 10 Eric B. and Rakim CDs or, or tapes for... $5.99, then you would mark them up to $8.99. Um, or 50 exhibit CDs, and you would buy them for $10.99. You would mark them up to $15.99. The label sells to the distributor for an undisclosed amount. I'm saying probably 3 to 
the district. Everybody marks it up until it gets to retail. This is when I saw, and maybe this is how I stayed ahead of the curve, the music industry collapsing. Also, there's the black market where if you're someone that works for a record label, how I probably met Charlie Collins and he's no longer with us. Rest in peace. I feel like I can share this and dry snitch a bit. But a lot, everybody that worked at a label would go to the Slauson Swap Meet or to, and would record companies have something called promos. And what they would do was take a razor or a, a hole puncher and stab it through the back of the CDs and cut the barcode so it couldn't be sold. And they were called promos. They were actually supposed to be giving these out on the streets, getting buzz going for the record. But they would take them to mom and pops and what was called break street date. Not only would they give it to them cheaper, but you could buy promo CDs for $5 each. So if you are Snoop and you have a new album come out, best believe that everyone that works at Priority hit the streets with your new record two weeks before the street date and gave it to the mom and pop stores at the swap meets for $5 a pop so they could flip it for $10 or however, because a lot of shit, the swap meets was tax-free. They're, um, you know, Korean, Asian entrepreneurs, young black and Latino entrepreneurs at these places servicing their community at a discounted rate because it's the hood. The motherfuckers don't got the money. And for me, I would go to the Slauson because they would be willing to break street date because they didn't have to worry about repercussions from the labels early on. They didn't worry about until the mixtape game kind of blew up. They didn't worry about the FBI or FCA or whoever the fuck polices that shit shutting them down. It's in the swamp meet. And they damn sure ain't going in the Slauson. And then you have to find the booth and all kind of shit. Then you have to do a sting operation. It just wasn't worth it. So if you worked at a record label and you were supposed to be on a street team or handling promotions or marketing or even some A&Rs, I believe, were caught up in the game where you would you could get off a bunch of CDs and you had people that did it for you. And you get, you know, make $1,000 over the weekend if you had a good enough release or more. I'm sure they're banging the motherfuckers out. All that to say, there were so many ways to win, but it was cheating, quote unquote, cheating. The artist, of course, gets fucked the most, but they're not going to pay Snoop or anybody their fucking royalties. I will say this, when I had a major label deal, and we'll get to that story later, but the Red Hot Chili Peppers have to audit Warner Brothers to get their royalties every eight years. So just consider that and think of how, you know, people turn into a race thing where, oh, the, you know, they're trying to fuck black artists up. No, I have more points on my album than Madonna. I've gone on record than that. Like these record deals are structured from old mob days and they're not fair to anyone. They weren't fair to Frank Sinatra and they're damn sure not fair to us, but they're not any more fair to white artists or non-hip-hop artists. Do you see what Taylor Swift had went through with Scooter Braun? Like, you see it, and we can't make it into a race issue or a hip-hop versus the world issue. It is a music industry issue. The music industry is an industry. It is not a business. It is a fucking... It is a shit show. A financial shit show. And I'm just describing to you one aspect of the shit show it used to be and how it became an even bigger shit show as I got older. So back to the one stops where they would have, you can go buy stuff for wholesale. The labels started gouging because they're losing money on promos and, 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 you know, Napster and shit. So the record industry, instead of, before they co-opted the streaming, you know, Spotify is just fucking Napster. They just fucked the kid who invented Napster and said, fuck you. Cause you wouldn't, you were evolving faster than we were willing to evolve before they were with it. Instead of handling their business with Napster and creating what exists now, embracing technology, because it is an old gangster-ass business, it's hard to evolve. They fucked 
the one wholesalers and one stops. So now CDs are wholesaling at $13.99. That means mom and pops have to sell to twenty for $20. And while they're doing that, the record labels, I believe, are going direct to Target and Best Buy. So you would go to your wholesaler and they're giving you the new. I remember specifically for Exhibit Restless, because I had a record store at the time and people wanted that CD. Exhibit Restless was wholesaling for $13.99 I could order it for. Or I could go to Target and get it for $9.99 or $8.99, the same CD. So what I learned from my mentor, Walker Martin, I would just go, especially in Tucson, as soon as the thing happens in my employee, or I would go out to Target and buy Little Wayne, whatever came out that day, and buy five or six of them. And people would still come buy it for me for $15 because they valued the mom and pop connection. It was just habit. People would not go to Target to buy or Best Buy. They would just go to the record store because people were still in the habit. And I wasn't taking advantage of them. I appreciate the support. But you're free to go to Little Wayne, to buy Little Wayne and Target if you can find it because I'm going in there and buying 10 of them. And then the then targets in, in some places, but I, that's why I said I was in Tucson, started limiting the amount of CDs you could buy. But that's how bad retail had gotten. It was better for mom and pop stores to go buy shit from Target or Best Buy because they, and for you don't understand the music business, Target is in the business of selling everything but music. And you know, and the memes exist, if your wife, men do it too, shut the fuck up. If your wife goes into Target, she's coming out with 20 different things. That's what they count on. So they'll throw you a little Wayne CD at a loss. Or, you know, they buy them from Warner Brothers for the same price. You know, let's give Warner Brothers or, or Priority or Universal, the benefit, Sony, the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're all selling to the wholesaler for $10. Target can afford to say, we're not going to mark it up. We're going to break even. Fuck it. We'll take a loss of a dollar per CD because for every person that comes in to buy a CD, they're going to buy a, a, pre, a pack of gum that we've marked up a thousand percent. Or when they come back to buy it, they'll, we're building a relationship with the customer. So they'll come when they get a refrigerator, you know, like when you don't, you buy a refrigerator once every seven, eight years, 10 years, five years, whatever, if you're a nutcase every three years, and you're going to go, oh, where do I go? Where should I go get a refrigerator? But you're subconsciously going into Best Buy every week to buy music. And you know that you see the refrigerators, you know, they're there. So boom, they got a refrigerator customer and they mark that up. They buy the refrigerator for $300 and they mark it up to a thousand. So they're getting, you know, they're in, they're playing a different game than they're not in the record business. So they are able to just give shit away. Going back to independent rap. And for me, I, my dream was to be in the Best Buy, to have a record that people could purchase all over the world instantly. And that's why I, I love streaming. And I love Napster. And I believe we've talked about it on this podcast, so I'll make it quick. When Metallica, fuck you, Lars, and um, I never met you, man, sorry, but fuck, the, fuck, fuck you for going after kids for getting music for free. Maybe I wouldn't have to whore myself out if you kids didn't steal my music. When it's all free now. And you have nothing. I, I haven't heard shit. Maybe he has, but nothing to say to Spotify now. Napster hijacked our music without asking. They never sought our permission. Our catalog of music simply became available for free downloads on the Napster system. <laughs> and if you watch the Metallica documentary, you really should. And I think the Living Legends, we would have benefited from having group therapy. You'll understand Lars a lot more. But that's a great, great documentary or film or whatever it's called. Why don't we just go in there and just hammer it out, all right, instead of hammering on each other? 
I mean, we're in mm. shit moods and we're not going to get like, any. All we want to do is pick today. a fucking fight. And you I know, don't want to pick a fight. This is so silly. You're just sitting there going, I'm in a really pissy mood. And, and I fucking told you straight up that I was. Right. And what are you trying to do? I'm not trying to do fucking shit. You're just sitting there being a complete dick. You're, you're really helping matters. You're really good at that. I was straight up with you and I told you I'm in a shit mood and what have you been doing? Fucking picking at me all night. Come on guys, we got better things to do. Right? Yeah, I do. I, I do. Anyway, when we would tour, we're on the High Road tour in 98, and even tours after that, I would beg people, steal my music because the playing field wasn't level. If you see an opening act on a major label, you know when you go, oh, he was kind of dope. They don't have a fucking murder. You know, or you see it on MTV. You come across a major label act. Their name sticks with you the next time you're in the record store. You're like, oh, I saw that. I heard that. Once you came across my music, however you came across it, there was no way to remind you other than please go home and download it tonight. If you like the show, go home and steal my music. I don't care. I just want you to listen to it so the next time I come to your town, you'll come to my show. And then maybe you'll buy a CD from me at the merch booth, or maybe you'll buy a t-shirt, or maybe you'll just be a fan and just come to shows. and Or maybe you'll be a fan that tells somebody else that might come to a show or might buy a CD if you ever happen to go into it. There are underground hip-hop shots. I want to give a shout-out to LA Underground. That's a whole, that could be a whole nother podcast. There's a place called LA Underground in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that bought a shit ton of tapes for us and helped establish that as a major market. There's a homegirl, Hardy, that was in Asheville, North Carolina, who used her independent wealth to start an independent record store and bring us there. So we were doing shows for a thousand kids in Asheville, North Carolina, before we had one record in a chain record store because of great people at hiphopsite.com in Las Vegas. There were places that you could stumble into and maybe purchase a record. But other than that, I was encouraging you to steal it so that if you did happen upon a mom and pop store, you would buy it because you were familiar. But if you never made it to one of those stores, you would still be able to stay in touch with the movement. And I can't stress enough how we started before there was money in rap. We started because we wanted to be heard because we love this shit. Why would I give a fuck if you stole it, if you listened to it? I just wanted to people to listen to my shit. Making a living was, I won't say secondary, but almost secondary. I just wanted to be heard. Why make audible art if you don't want it to be heard? There's a million ways to make money. There's only one way to make music, if that makes sense to y'all, or one reason to make music. There's many reasons to make money, and there's many ways to make money. But there's only one real reason to make music, and it's to be heard. And we were very in tune with that. And I, hopefully our movement will stay. As, as our movement, I feel kind of like diminishes, and I really appreciate the code of the friends and the Marlon Crafts of the world that are keeping the sentiment alive, and many others that I know with James and, you know, Curtis King. There's so many people still doing it for the right reasons. But it's kind of hard because you can see wealth on the other side of it now. I didn't see wealth. Back to EPMD, and we're going to play that quote a bunch of times on this podcast. Rap has been around long, making mad noise, you see. Still, I haven't seen one rapper living comfortably, is what my favorite group at the time said to me. Some say there's no business like show business, but if this the truth, please explain why is this? Rap has been around long, making mad noise, you see. Still, I haven't seen one rapper living comfortably. No time to pick and wish on the four-leaf clover. I stick to underground, keep the crossover. 
I still wanted to have music in record stores, but not to make money because I understood the business. I understood that me having a record in Best Buy wasn't going to make whatever label I was on more money, but it would make me more, just more, more likely to be listened to. I'm fucking up my words today. And that's all I wanted. I wanted people to listen. So this is what Def Jux did for me. It got me into the best buy circular eventually. The end of the beginning means the end of me not being on a major platform. When LP gave me this opportunity, he had already had Cannibal Ox go nationwide. Great reviews. Shout out to Biz3, uh, Catherine. We'll get in. That's a whole. This podcast, this could be a, a season. I could do a season on the on Def Jux era and the end of the beginning alone. So I don't know how many episodes it's going to be. My goal was to have this just be one podcast a week and lead up to the new and final album, Love and Rockets 3 or 316, still in the works, which I just got a couple of rough mixes and we're finally there. I've actually heard two kind of finished songs, only like 15 more to go. And then we got to get the features. But I was supposed to lead right into that. I believe that now that this podcast will continue and the new album will be out everywhere before we get to breaking down the new album, um, if that's okay with y'all. And a lot of y'all leave some feedback, slide in my DMs, tweet. I haven't really tweeted about the podcast, but yeah, seems to be getting legs. People are talking and I'm I'm grateful. Biz3. Pro, that's a publicist, Catherine Frazier. She be, went on to be J. Cole's publicist, Atmosphere's publicist, uh, Aesop Roy, everybody's publicist. Uh, but she was working with Def Jux, I believe, from day one. It was nationwide. Canox was in Rolling Stone. So when he invited me to be a part of this, it was still early on. But definitely, I knew that I had the potential to be everywhere. So I wanted to call the first record. This is the end of the beginning. And back to the music industry, the music industry had stopped being Motown. It had stopped being an industry where you got etiquette, where you got, uh, I know Catherine wishes I had that uh, interview etiquette and all these things. Choreographers, stylists, you know, they're making products and they were A&Rs actually developing sounds, working on records. Um, people like I'm assuming what, what Dante Ross did and Kadar Massenberg, uh, Kim Bowie. These are names I know because I studied the music industry and people. I would read the A&R credits. Dave Gossett, who worked with Black Sheep. Amazing A&Rs that would be in sessions bringing ideas, producers, sounds. As That's my understanding. Like really shaping and working artists. I'm working with artists before they got to marketing. Now they just take you and they market you if you already have the numbers. They search YouTube and like, okay, you're good. And I was also, when we get to uh, Murray's Revenge, we'll talk about how I was part of that original scheme. Oh, here's an indie kid who's figured out on his own. All we have to do is pump more money into it and it should be good. Fuck developing, fuck producing. So I had A&R'd myself from the age of 14 till now where Merch Rules the World and Varsity Blues, I was able to communicate ideas. I kind of figured out structure course. I had done felt. I had found out the count bars. All this shit that could have been taught to me by a quote-unquote real producer or not just a beat maker or A&R. Someone could have saw my raw talent and energy and shaped it, and no one was doing those jobs anymore. They were, they were doing it, but they were taking groups that were cookie-cutter. If you're on the West Coast, it could only be G-Funk. They would find gangsters and turn them into better rappers. They were no longer just finding dope talent and developing it. There was no LL Cool J going from I Need a Beat to Around the Way Girl. There wasn't an industry creating that or making that. Not, I don't know LL's story. Maybe he did it all himself. But to me, 
There was no one taking the cookie puss Beastie Boys and making them Brass Monkey, Paul's Boutique, or giving them the space and the, the means to create a check your head. There were just, if you're from the East Coast, you're going to do this. If you're from the West Coast, you're going to do this. If you're from the South, you're going to do this. And it took people like the Dungeon family and, you know, LaFace and, and then just people breaking rules and me breaking my own rules and breaking myself as an artist and same with everyone in Living Legends and me like getting shit on by my homies. Like whether I think they admit it or not, like I felt the energy and it was real. I wasn't given beats by certain people in my crew or certain people in the scene because the, I was unrefined. I couldn't rap on beat. My voice was whack or whatever. My concept, like I was still in that negative feedback or those doors closing in my face. I wish it would have just been direct. I feel like I could have took that, taken that because I was looking for someone to be direct and honest with me. But a lot of artists are sensitive and I'm sensitive in other ways, but I'm not sensitive about my lack of rhythm or anything when it comes to rapping. I want to be better really bad. And that's why I got better instead of being bitter. Like, all right, well, cool. You such and such won't give me a beat? Well, I'm just going to get so good that it's undeniable. And so good that someone like LP would give me this opportunity. Who is LP? <sighs> it's hard. I'm going to start at the current and work and then jump all the way back. I do a program called Ground Waves in Northwest Arkansas. All the stats are whatever. Supposedly, there are more millionaires per capita there anywhere in the world. There's Tyson Farms, J.B. Hunt Trucking, and Walmart. There's a lot of money there. And that money has been turned into a lot of great art programs. A thank you to those foundations that are really doing the work. There's a museum called Crystal Bridges, and there's a place called The Momentary. These museums are some of the few museums or maybe something like the only museum to be created with no budget. I will tell you this, and I've been confirmed by my good friend Jay Yedo, who has also traveled the world. Possibly the best museum on the planet, but definitely the best museum on the continent of North America, and at least in the United States of America. I haven't been to the FA. I haven't been to Mexico City, so I can't say that, but I've pretty thoroughly been through Canada. Crystal Bridges is something, it's a must-see if you're into museums, if you're into art. Not too far from there is a place called The Momentary, and as part of The Momentary is another museum, which I have yet to visit, The Momentary, the inside, but outdoors, they have a huge venue, outdoor venue. In the middle of Northwest Arkansas, just three hours north of Little Rock, which is one and one and a half, two hours east of Tulsa, I think southwest of Memphis, a corner of the world that people wouldn't recognize to have a Run the Jewels show with 2,000 people outdoors. Um, I hadn't seen my friend LP in over a decade. I got to reconnect with him, but I also got to stand in the crowd. And um, I'm going to tell a couple of stories here. Big Boy was on the bill too. Big Boy, quote unquote, opened for Run the Jewels, which is crazy. And then I watched 2,000 people kind of like, not all of them, but a lot of them 
oh, this is nice, while Big Boy ran through legitimate outcast hits. This is to explain the anomaly of what Run the Jewels is. Who are you, motherfuckers, that are RTJ fans? God bless you. But I was like, yo, what is this? What I loved is that Killer Mike, who came out of the Dungeon Family camp, didn't do the headliner shit where he isn't going to be seen on stage until he and his great group Run the Jewels, which is great. Now, I'm not making light of that. Go on. Because he got his start with Outkast. He came out and did. He did the whole world. I'm ready to go crazy. I've never seen them do it live. I've been waiting to see Big Boy and Killer Mike in the same place. God knows whenever I'll see Andre and him and all of them together. But I can't wait for that day. I'm going to speak it. Seeing them do it, and I'm going crazy like they're about to do the whole world. This is the first time I heard Killer Mike and Big Boy and Sleepy Brown. Oh, my God. And it wasn't a moment for all two. It was a moment for 10% of us. But the fact that Killer Mike came out and did that, and, a, and the Kill Bill song, I think one more jam they did together. But I was like, yo, he he could have stayed in his hotel and waited till it was time for Run the Jewels camp, but he came to the venue with his crew, with the Dungeon family, and came out and rapped with Big Boy. And then during Run the Jewels set, Big Boy is like the big homie proud, like Instagramming. He's not bitter. He's not, It just was a dope moment to see for hip-hop, for black men. I loved it. Like, he stood on side of the stage the whole time, loving it, like, participate, watching Run the Jewels, watching L. And for me, I know, like, me and L are fans of Outkast before he met Mike, before he met Big Boy. And to see LP and Big Boy exchanging love and, like, you know, Big Boy rapping on LP, it's amazing to me. I can't tell you what a moment it is and how far this shit has come. But the point being, I saw Killer Mike and LP, who have extensive careers and, to me, great bodies of work previous to Run the Jewels, do a 70-minute, maybe a 90-minute set and not do one song before RTJ won. And no one was disappointed. Who are Run the Jewels fans? That's a breakdown I might have to do. Who are you? With the utmost respect, no hip-hop backpack elitism in it. Just who are you, you beautiful people, that you can love LP without having heard Vital Nerve? I'll do the simple shit. Strike harder than Hoffa. L the maladjusted MC funk crusher. Massive. I'm signed for my condition. Automatic onslaught. Connect thoughts. Get jostled at your position. Listen. Abort mission. Without further discussion. Dual personality. Half me, half bum rock. Doc Jekyll when I burn your paragraph down to a haiku. So Tootsie roll the fuck back to your seat because I don't like you. Like you. Like you. Soon you'll see as I flow fluently to frequently. Soon you'll see as I flow fluently to frequently. Another MC will drop off the face of this earth for what it's worth. I've been the nastiest one since birth. That's who LP was to me when we met at Rock Steady Jam. I believe nice. I have to ask Eternia. There's a picture of me and Eternia rapping. And I don't know if we've told that story in this podcast, but Rock Steady was a huge moment. And LP was there. And we knew that we were going to meet LP 
at the Gavin and have a showcase with them in San Diego a couple weeks later. So I gave him a tape. The tape was a compilation tape, sampler tape. I made of everybody in Living Legends. It had two reasons, the Jerry Maguire song and some other stuff that we had done. And I thought it'd be a good me being, I think I made it for everybody in the crew out of the goodness of my heart. Nobody else was thinking about me. I don't think, but maybe we all had them. But I feel like I made this tape as a sampler of what we had to sell in New York because it was me and Mystic Journeyman. I think we were the only ones that went to Rocksteady. As I work with Groundways and Thought Fest is coming up this weekend, um, the Colorado chapter especially are coming out here paying out of their own pocket. And that's, I went to Rocksteady Jam to rock a show where I didn't have a set. All I was supposed to do was introduce Mystic Journeyman like I did in Europe. Freestyle if I had the chance. The lightning struck and uh, the sound went out in the in Rocksteady Park or wherever we were in the Bronx. And they threw the mic to me. There's somebody freestyling. I think Supernat was there. Supernat didn't want to freestyle because he was supposed to come on later. Headliner shit. Not no, no, no shade. Just, you know, like you give your show when it's your time to give your show. So, and thank God I had the opportunity to rap right then. So they said, give it to Merce. And I went in, said some shit about Karis One, obey your thirst, obey Merce. And I was in the Bronx saying shit about Karis One on the mic in his Sprite commercials. Woo, buddy. Got big pop. As wrestling fans say, a big pop out of the crowd. Low-hanging fruit when you're freestyling. You know, certain eras, like if you diss George Bush, you get a real blah, blah, blah. You diss Donald Trump. Like, low-hanging fruit. You say the name of the city. All the ladies make some noise. They're freestyle tricks that you can manipulate. So I dropped that one, got a little bit of a reaction. Somebody has a picture of me doing that. And my name, veins are busted out of my neck. I'm acapella in the Bronx, rapping my ass off. No one can take that real hip-hop moment from me. Most deaf is on the side wearing his baby. I love wearing my babies now, and it's one of the first black men I've seen and definitely youngest and coolest black men I've seen wearing a baby, and that was a moment for me. And my wife and I talk about it all the time as our six-month-old gets like, wearing a baby, there's nothing like it. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. It's so primal, even for, uh, for a male. I love wearing my baby. I love wearing all my babies. I've worn all my sons. And I know it has to, like, that. back then, it just looked cool. Because I saw he rocked A, B, boys rocked the world, CDs. I think he rocked it with the baby on his chest. And I was like, man, I want to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> a, A, B, boys rock the world. Hi. CDs and tapes help generate tapes. E, e F, F is F, the import of death. G, good. good. H is what style B. But I grabbed the microphone and MC. So shout out to Yasin Bey. Sorry to disrespect, but back then it was most. I get off stage and I see LP and he's like, yo, son, like, I'm going to be with you. He actually listened to the tape. So when I saw him at the Gavin, we were at a bar and this is our first reel. And that was like me handing the tape, me, him. I saw him, Lynn, and Justin. I thought, That's company flow. Just in case there's someone who does. Not that you, there's so many people who don't know and no run jewels, but the fact that there's a possibility that you're listening to this podcast and you haven't experienced the great company flow. You know who I am and you don't know who company flow is. There are a lot of people out there who, like, it's, I can't even, man, it's like, you know, people who love Jesus but never heard of Moses or never heard of the Ten Commandments. Like, tantamount to that. I literally, I do have tears. Okay. Probably crying and laughing at the same time. Cue up the Q-tip. I guess I'll have to keep from crying. So much going on. People killing, people dying. 
Is there an English word for it? I feel like there's probably a word for it in Portuguese or some romantic language or Japanese or something where you're crying at the same time because you're sad and happy. There's a word for it. Kanzunazi or something like that. Okay. Um, their group, a trio, I see, and then I don't know where Justice from originally. I think he's from New York. LP's from Brooklyn. Mr. Lynn's from Jersey. Mr. Lynn did the cuts and co-produced things with LP. Just had the illest raps, and I believe is an ill-ass graffiti writer, and just just ill mind in general. There was a song called Juvenile Techniques that came before that. I didn't know it. Um, what I do know, first song I heard was Peep Around Corners or, or, or Vital Nerve, which were back in the days where Mr. C and Ron G and Doo-Wop would make these things real mixtapes where they blended and did the New York shit and talked over, yo, no shit, Ron G, Waterbed, and Kid Capri, like real mixtapes before Clue. And they would have Biggie on this, like I heard Biggie, this group called Ten Thieves, uh, hard to obtain with a song called L.I. Groove. Put down your paper, y'all flex with the but that's invented to make your head bounce from the flavor that we brought forth from the 12 block. So check it, the type of thing where if you make the room, you get wet. Shit. With the technology brought by the new one, plus one mix of trio, that's the M6 Amico. So many dope songs, but along with commercial, like you still get your Def Jam, Red Man, Method Man, but then there'd be peep around corners and Vital Nerve I heard on these random mixtapes mixed in with all this other street, hardcore New York shit, M.O.P., all, they just put it all together. They weren't separating real from fake. They were separating East from West, but I'll give you that. I'm not mad at that. But even some of them started mixing Snoop in later on, like in Warren G and the Twins and shit like that. The Five Footers, they, they respected lyricism and creativity. MC8 was on a couple of those tapes. Once again, I believe major labels had a large part of doing shit and shit down like that because they weren't getting their cut. But the culture was together, and that's how I heard Company Flow. I didn't even know the fucking name, but I heard this song. And then Mark Love and all the Unity DJs playing shit like that in the illegal hip-hop nightclubs. Or underground, I should say underground, not illegal, but they were illegal as well. The funny thing is, like, we were just trying, like, we didn't even, we just wanted to smoke weed, which is completely legal. We didn't even want liquor at these parties most of the time. There was no bar. Nobody get fired. I never even saw a bar until later in hip-hop, when bars thought they could profit from hip-hop. Um, and Will I Am made a great point. That's another story from Mercer President. But, like, he had, I believe, a meeting with Coors, and he's like, I, you're not, a, we're not in the music business, but we want to give you a, he's like, motherfucker, everybody's in the music business. Nobody goes to fucking a bar to buy Coors. They come to fucking... You could drink at home for cheaper. You come because the fucking music and the people there and the music is what brings the people there and what creates the vibe. And that's the same thing with these bars. Like we were having hip hop shows and underground things and now they want to take a cut of the merch and they don't want to give you a percentage of the bar. When it was hip hop that brought people, if you never started allowing hip hop in the bars and we continued to have to do them at venues with no liquor, people would still come because we want to smoke weed anyway. I feel like corrupt. We got our own shit, cuz. We got ours. <laughs> we got ours, cuz. We had our own thing. We did not need the music industry and we did not need the alcohol industry. These were the places where I heard groups that I still love, the boot camp click and shit like that. I would have loved it if they played some Dr. Dre 
and DJ Quick at these clubs too, but the West Coast was segregated and that wasn't real hip hop, but I was still listening to all of the shit. I had my little phase for two or three years when I didn't really want to hear any shit, but that was just because I was frustrated with the Crips in my backyard and all the loss and trauma and stress that was going on. I didn't want to listen to it because I was living it. But other than that, artistically, I've always held DJ Quick in the same esteem as DJ Premier or Pete Rock, as they're both rappers and producers. There's no fucking difference to me. And there was no difference between Biggie and LP. Like, I love people around corners as much as I love fucking Unbelievable. They bang. And that was how I view company flow. I gave LP a tape. And, you know, it was before Front Crusher Plus came out, which is Front Crusher, the EP was out. Or was it an LP? It was a double vinyl on official recordings, which I believe was their label with Amici, I don't know for sure, but it was a clear vinyl. Shout out to the fan that sent me a copy. It's going for like a hundred something dollars. But clear vinyl, me and Aesop had it. We would listen to it. I think this is a little, maybe pre-Fondalum or right around time Fondalum was popping. So Sai and Yeshua and all that stuff. Gave him a copy, saw him in San Diego at the club. He remembered, and uh, I was smoking a cigarette and he was like, yo, bust me down. And I was like, what, cuz? Like, what? Huh? Yo, bust me down. And I'm like, what does that mean, bro? And he's like, can I have a cig- Can I bum a cigarette? And I was like, oh, yeah. And he, then he bought me a Seagram 7 and 7. And this is me. Like I said, I'm coming from an era of hip-hop where I didn't have a bar. I don't have a drinking preference. I drink Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill and 40 ounces of Budweiser just so I could sleep and get rid of my anxiety. But I really also didn't drink at nightclubs because I was always going out in a potential of getting fights. And I always saw drunk people getting mollywopped. So I didn't drink. It's crazy. Mollywopped is a phrase used in the new Ninja Turtle movies. Ice Cube gets off with saying, cuz and Mollywop. Or said he told somebody, don't cuz me. He told Donatello, don't, don't cuz me. He got in and he got away at six in the morning and he got away saying Mollywop. And then Michelangelo repeats it, and my kids think it's the funniest thing. Yo, come on, y'all. My dad, Baxter Stockman, he's the one who dumped the ooze down the drain, baby. So technically, we cousins. But back then it was serious and I was always with my head on a swivel because I didn't want to be the drunk nigga getting mollywopped at the club. Sorry to use the N-word. But LP bought me a string of seven and seven. It tasted so good when it hit my lips and we became friends. We kicked it all night. After that, we went to Denny's where it was a white rapper convention. I'd be like, E.C. Illa was there. If you guys know, do your research. Chicago, white MC, independent icon. If you can, you know, say that, give him his prop. Look like Grouch. It was like, I remember me and Aesop looking around, and we're like, this is the white, this is before, when white rappers were a rare thing. Imagine that. And we're like, whoa. And uh, we're going outside, and uh, me and Aesop and LP are all hanging out. We were smoking cigarettes, eating Denny's, drinking. And I'll never forget, someone was talking shit in, on the way outside the sidewalk. San Diego was always an ill place for me, and we can, that's a tour story. But this motherfucker, Aesop, jumped up out of nowhere. Imagine, like, we're like, what motherfucker? Like, it's, I think it's me, L. And Aesop, the Black Wolf, sorry, you got, damn, I have to say that too. Aesop, the Black Wolf, not Aesop Rock. Neither, no one knows Aesop Rock in our circle yet. He has not been introduced. That'll come later in this podcast. 
Aesop jumps up in the middle of us arguing with these people and breaks a huge branch off of a tree. He used to call it spaghetti arms. Like his, I've seen him do shit, like push shit or move shit in the, in the heat of a battle. Like just his adrenaline starts flowing. So he ripped his tree, starts swinging at these motherfuckers. Nigga, how fuck you kill you, bro? We're like, yo. And we laugh in the situation. Like if any, if you see a grown man snatch a fucking huge trunk off a fucking tree, it kind of just changes the situation. I believe that the leaves on the tree were brown ish, orangish as California gets on. So it had to be the fall of 90 something. There are no social media. We all come to these things, though. There's CMJ, which is College Music Journal, maybe. Help me, please, Jessica Spector. I don't know. Uh, CMJ, NMS New Music Seminar, The Gavin, and Jack the Rapper, How Can I Be Down in Atlanta. There's these all these rap conferences going on. So I believe we go to New York for CMJ, and that's when I see LP again. We end up going to a strip club. He's like, I think it's like, let me borrow $300. I'm like, all right. And I had it, you know, so I gave it to him. And then, like, that was a sign of trust or whatever. Like, he already heard the music. He was like, quote, like, I put a, yo, you son, you said I put my middle finger in your mouth. I give a fuck what you say, and I like that line. I was like, oh, shit, you actually listened. Well, I like this song by you, and we're kind of building. Because I loved Indelibles. And I'm going to do this, and I don't know how it's going to sound. you heard fire in which you burn to me that was my generation i guess kids of of a little younger than me like grinding and that was a lunch table beat when i was a little like 14 real love was the lunch table thing To me, I always tell L like that, like that. Fucking with a nigga like myself, you learn feel the verge gear, social record. So unless the hoes but naked, use a loser. Decrepit should have kept it to your lonesome, but you like I could do the whole song. Uh. Fucking with a nigga like myself, you learn feel the verge gear, social record. So unless the hoes but naked, use a loser. Decrepit should have kept it to your lonesome, but you like look everybody, I'm a silly man. Fire what you burn. It was a posse cut. The posse was indelibles. J Treads. Breezley Bruin of the Juggernauts. Great. Some of the best MCs in the fucking world. Big Just, Mr. Lynn, LP, and uh, Queen Heroin, also in the Juggernauts. Breeze's sister. She was on weight. And she starts it off with, aside from getting in you, the words are staying you permanent like ink and epidermis. From top to waters, for starters, you might have thought of, man. Aside from getting in you, the words are staying you permanent like ink and epidermis. From tap to waters, discard this, thought of partnership. You may have thought for this position of status, it's entrepreneurship. Matter of fact, madness, I planned this like serial killers to banish flows aquatic like vicious surroundings. Underground. This is before weight, but this was uh, Fire in What You Burn was also, I believe, on the original Fun Crusher. Before it was redistributed, packaged, repackaged, and redistributed on Rockers in the end burners, which was one of the first indie rap videos I can remember. So hip hop, so dope.
But I'm quoting Fire What You Burn, telling them I love the beat. And I'm still kind of learning producers at this time. I don't know if LP or Mr. Lin did the beat. I'm just telling him I love that song. He's telling me he likes my shit. We are, I think, leaving Wetlands, go to a strip club or something. I lend him some money. He actually pays me back. That's trust. Now we have a mutual respect. We have almost been in a fight together. We've been in a strip, like, fought, fucked, and admired each other's art. Not, we didn't fuck each other, assholes, but uh, you know what I'm saying. There's been, you know, like, we chasing, going to a strip club together, like all the bonding things men bond over. And I'm sure there's, you know, whatever, some homoerotic spin you could put on it because it's, it's all a spectrum, right? You know, a bunch of men get together to look at a bunch of women that no one can really have sex with. Like I said, as we grow up through this podcast, you start to go back and look at your life. Um, but at the time, drinking, smoking, strip clubs, money, we like the way each other rap. We're fucking brothers to me at this point. We just haven't been on tour yet. Somewhere, somehow, he probably remembers better than me, maybe not. He offers me a chance to be on his label. He offers the chance to me and Aesop. So Aesop the Black Wolf was supposed to be signed to Def Jux before Aesop Rock. That's a little known fact people don't know. And Aesop said, I want to stay in Fresno. It goes back to like the living legends were definitely into holding down the West Coast. I have, because I was a kid that moved around a lot, it's where you're, the way people say, oh, my parents traumatized me or whatever. It was traumatic for me to move around a lot, but you turn your negatives into and minuses. I mean, pluses into minus, minuses into pluses. That's hip-hop. Lack of funding and education, music education in schools leads to us creating a new way to express ourselves. I'm not going to be a typical Gen Xer, but please stop harping on your triggers and your fucking boundaries and your motherfucking traumas and just start working to be a stronger and better human. Go forward. And yeah, go forward and set your boundaries. Go forward and heal. But a lot of the healing is an actual doing. It's not sitting down and doing nothing. There's a period for sitting down and doing nothing and reflection. And we'll get to my period for that later. But there is a time for that. And I guess that's a mental health update. I haven't done that with y'all. Yeah, like varsity blues, I was fucking down. I'm medicated now. Taking my meds, coming out of that God Loves Ugly tour is the end of my medication and um, or the, the, somewhere around here, some of these songs recorded end up somewhere along here. I cease taking my pills. I take some time off and uh, work through a CBT program, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, and start seeing a specialist who who requests group therapy. And and if there's a stigma around in the black community around therapy, there's a to me a bigger stigma and getting that type of help in a group setting. Like if you think sitting one-on-one -on -one talking about your problems, sitting in a group of people who aren't black and aren't all male or whatever, whatever it is, it's uncomfortable as fuck. And I denied it, but I did not want to go back on medication. I was on the God Loves Ugly tour. The doctor, the psychiatrist said that I would be able to renew my prescription, but didn't say I have to visit every 30 days in order to get a renewal. I told him that I was a touring musician. And I, I guess too, touring for everybody isn't 60 days, but the God Loves Ugly Tour is like 70 days or something. And I wasn't supposed to stay on the thing, but I was supposed to be gone for over 30 days. And then I had so much fun that I stayed or tried to stay until my medication ran out and I got dope sick. And I've never been dope sick, but it's what I like, and this may be graphic and sorry, whatever, brace yourself. But like I shit on my, I'm vomiting and I couldn't even make, I'm in Canada. I'm in a hotel room in Montreal. I finally like, cause the doctor was like, well, if you ever can't get to me, just half your prescription out. Like, start weaning yourself. So I did that. And at the end, when I ran out, 
we were in Canada and I was dope sick and I was shitting on myself, vomiting and God bless Blueprint. He had to like pick me up and like walk with me to the nearest clinic where I got. And God bless Canada for 50, 35 bucks, I believe. I walked into a clinic. I was seen 15 minutes later. I was given an IV and some steroids and boom, I was back on tour. Still sick though, because I wasn't getting my dope, which was I then realized what these drugs were doing to me. And after going through that, I'm like, okay, I've been through the hard part. I can go back and get more pills or I can start doing the other work that hopefully will work for me, changing my diet. That's when I stopped drinking, tried to stop smoking cigarettes. Um, and it was a two-year two process. Like It wasn't until like Murray's Revenge when I was really clean. So it's like three years of me getting therapy and blah, blah, blah. So I'm not saying it's, the trauma's not real, but I'm saying if you can heal and work through it, Use it as your strength. And my strength was I was cool with being uncomfortable. So when LP said, yo, I don't have a hotel, I don't have a studio, but you can come live at my place in Brooklyn and make an album that will be nationally distributed. And at this time, we're all loving Cannibal Ox. I'm loving the Def Jux Presents Volume 1. I'm like, yes, I want to hang out with the motherfuckers that made Iron Galaxy because there was only a single out when, can I, when I first got into signing to Def Jux. I did a tour a year earlier with Lyft. Yeah, you, you nigga, that nigga that made front on this. I dare you to front on this record labels. Front on this, yo, bro. Record labels, front on this. Weak lyricists, front on this. Those who practice wickedness, front on this. I dare you to front on this. Boston, front on this. New York City, front on this. Cali. Front on this, I dare you to. Yo, a lot of rappers will pretend to be hard. Then they bitch when I mash up their memory card. Looking like they're gonna cry, but if you wanna... Shout out to DJ Paul who made that beat. I've hounded him about that for years. Yes, I wanna be on this fucking label. Like the dudes from Megahertz and like everybody, like there's so much buzz in our scene around this label before everyone knows what Canox is going to become or Camuteo is going to become. Like, I've heard all these names and we're all coalescing or forming in this area. And I had just done Stretch and Bobito. Stretch and Bobito weren't there. But on another trip to New York, like, it's me, Gene Gray, Vast. And I remember meeting Vast at uh, whatever the station was uh, for, for Stretch and Bob. I, think, I believe, like, Ellie or whoever had taken it over by then. But he's sitting on the stairs. He's like, yo... You made three melancholy gypsies? Yo, you nice. And I'm like, I'm like, yo, what's up, peace, man? What's your name? Vast. And I'm like, oh shit. Yes, you are vast. But oh shit, the dudes from Canada, they tell me like Vordo, the girl that he raps about on that on that song, I believe it's Iron Galaxy. Like, uh, what is it? I'm vast air, Kramer. Top billing. I'm vast air, Kramer, top billing. Vordo's verse, he's referencing a girl from Santa Cruz. And he's like, that's the girl who gave us the 3MG tape and blah, blah, blah. And uh, that uh, was a moment for me. I'm like, yo, motherfuckers know 3MG and I know Canox. So yeah, I'm like, yeah. I want to 
I want to be a part of this label, L. Like, I will sleep wherever the fuck I got to sleep, man. Like, I don't care. Like, yes, he has a two-bedroom apartment. Vast was living downstairs. Studio was in one, and his room was upstairs. And me and Abilities, and because he was working on his debut record, um, Fantastic Damage, as well. Imagine starting a label and not start. This is another way I, like with pay dues, I feel partly was successful because I never put myself as the headliner if I could help it. I was okay with people. And L started a label by putting out an album for two people that wasn't himself, weren't himself. Can Ox was the first full-length album on Definitive Jux. And you could arguably say the most talented motherfucker was LP, but he didn't put his bars above... This great body of work. The Cold Vein is one of the best rap albums ever made. One of the best albums any genre ever made. It's amazing. Birds of the same feather flock together, congested on a majestic street corner. That's a short time goal for most of them, because most of them would rather expand their wings and hover over greater things. That's what we call inspired flight by the pigeons that gotta eat pizza crust every night. And let there be so I'm hearing those songs before, like, hey, I can see him playing Pigeon, playing these songs for me on his dad when I'm visiting him and he's telling me he wants me to be on the label. I'm like, yes, I want to be in this room rapping the beats like this, hanging out with motherfuckers like y'all. Dude, this shit is cool as fuck. It's just not better than Living Legends, but it's different. And I am more uncomfortable with staying in the same place than I am making new friends because that's been my life. So it's kind of me falling into a pattern. Um, but some people on my crew took it as disrespect or crew. I'm just like, yo, this is new. This is fun. I've been somewhere for four or five years. This time at 45 years old is still the most I've ever lived in one house in my life. So when you talk about stability, and still I travel once a month and stay places for a week. I still every year or two go on tour for months or weeks at a time. And I go out of the country at least once a year. Like, I'm like the existence of just staying in one place and one group of friends and one toilet and one, one room is so foreign to me, especially at this age when I'm what, this is 2002. So I'm 22, 20, 23, 24. I'm packing a lot of shit. Like I'm starting to deal with like just real trauma and alcohol abuse and nicotine addiction and depression and anxiety. I have no time to in fact deal with. I'm more comfortable being on the move or cannot articulate that to my friends who may feel that I'm making choices based on who's going to blow up. And that's why I stress the fact that LP had left Rockets after Fun Crusher Plus. Company Flow is broken up. Def Jux Presents Volume 1 is out, and I think he put out Little Johnny from the Hospital, which is the first instrumental rap album of my life. I'm not really into beats, but that's another reason I want to work at LP. I bought that from Beat Nonstop on Melrose. Just listened to it. I was like, oh, the homie put out something new. Lynn and then put out something new. Let me listen to this. And I, that's the first time I heard music with no words that I really, I still can't really listen to a lot of jazz. I need words. And rap, I really need words as rap because there's no solos most of the time. Like this whole DJ shadow and all that shit, I was like, nah, this is not for me. With all respect, the producer culture was not for me. And I don't know beats. I'm not really good at picking beats. I'm getting better now. But when I heard little Johnny from the hospital, I was like, yo, this shit is fire. I gotta rap with this motherfucker. And these are things I spoke into existence. I didn't track down LP. Just when we crossed paths, we clicked. He's a Pisces, I guess now if you ask my wife, like those things matter. I don't know, like Eli's a Pisces, or no, Eli's a, is Eli a Pisces? Yeah, Eli's a Pisces, Scarabs are Aries. Whatever, all this shit works. Um, come on, like a lot of my good friends are Pisces or whatever. So it worked. 
and I ended up working with him, and I ended up taking the leap, and Aesop chose to stay back. I wasn't mad at him. We had a talk. Like He thought I was mad at him for years. I definitely was never mad. I wish my brother would have came with me. And also, we've we've talked about my need to not be at the forefront. I don't like being the center of attention. I would have loved to just, the foundation sign as a group to Def Jux. But LP also wanted us to do solo projects. He was looking for artists. His It was RZA-like mentality, like him trying to put everybody on in a way that made sense. And he did. It wasn't as successful as Wu-Tang, but Def Jux made a mark. Where I was looking for that with Outhouse Records, possibly um, with Living Legends, us creating one banner. But I think by then, as just being men, my belief is 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 that it's competitive by nature. And my belief is also that we didn't have, Living Legends didn't have a common bond outside of music. And that's what Wu-Tang and Hyrule have. And that's what I believe it takes to maintain a rap crew or any group that doesn't have an, a, a, and it takes a leader. Someone that everyone's acknowledged, this is Riz's vision, or Domino's in charge at this point. And, you know, Tajay Hyro, I think, has come through multiple, but there's usually a, someone at the forefront. We never did that. And I think it would have been better to come together as a label than a crew and having, like, Rhyme Sayers work because Sadiq is the head. Um, Brent Sayers is the head of Rhyme Sayers, but he's the guy who produced God's Bathroom Floor. He wasn't whacked by any means with production, but he took a back seat and said, someone has to handle this business in order for us to have Rhyme Sayers, to have Brother Ali, Idea, and every other POS, all the wonderful things that have come out of Rhyme Sayers. Someone had to take a back seat, and Living Legends didn't do that. And LP had Amici and um, Jesse, who we'll talk about. He had a staff, and he had the humility to say, all right, I'm not just going to bust out with my solo album. Coflo broke up. Give me fantastic damage. It's coming. He took his time. He also found artists he believed in. I believe it's it was a great idea for him to grab somebody from the West Coast if it, was, if it wasn't me. Because immediately, Def Jux had a versatility that a lot of hip-hop-based labels didn't have. Cash Money is all people from one area. No Limit, all people from one area. Sick With It Records, all people from one area. Labels I love and respect and learn from. It does, you know, Tommy Boy kind of branched out, but Tommy Boy was having a hard time. And even then, it wasn't like there was a... They kind of tried to sign the Jazzy Fat Nasties, if you remember that, and Quentin. But they're West Coast hooligans from the West Coast. If you know the hooligans, Scott Kahn, James, son of James Kahn Kahn, and the Alchemist had a group called the Hooligans. Maybe we'll play a little bit of Throw Your Hands Up. First, I grabbed the number two, and then I hit the loose leaf. If you got beef with my crew, there were a couple dogs for protection in a but as far as like a real West Coast vibe, there wasn't a hip hop label, and I may be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that had both. And I think LP was a visionary for that. Humble, authentic, good dude, come to my house, let's make an album for you. Here's a budget. And I think that's a good place to end episode one if we're gonna do it. Thanks for listening to the Best Rapper in L.A. podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is. If you like the show, leave a review on Apple Music or Spotify. And to support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash M-U-R-S 316, March 316. See y'all next week. Peace. Peace. <laughs>